All right, back on Young Turks. Uh, we've got a couple of great guests for you guys, so let's get started. Joining me now is Jonathan Larson. He's managing editor uh, at TYT Investigates and has broken a story today, a major story about South Bend and Pete Buttigieg's uh, terms there. Uh, Jonathan, welcome uh, to the Young Turks. Thank you, Jack. Okay, uh, so Jonathan, later I want to discuss how you wound up going to South Bend in the first place and investigating uh, these stories. But first, I want to focus on the story from today. Um, so we discussed it earlier in the program uh, about uh, these documents uh, that you had uh, uh, reported on. Uh, where they discussed some of the things that were in the recordings uh, of the South Bend Police Department. So what were in those recordings according to those documents? So according to the documents that we've had access to, uh, South Bend Police in the course over the course of early 2011, were talking about how to use Buttigieg's, Buttigieg's campaign donors to get him to get rid of uh, Chief Darrell Boykins, the first black police chief of the South Bend Police Department. And uh, this was during the campaign leading up to uh, Buttigieg's primary victory in May of 2011 and after it as well. And according to the documents, one police officer is uh, quoted as saying that, is, is quoted as saying that Buttigieg has decided by June of 2011 that Boykins is done. That's the phrase in the documents, Boykins is done. So let's talk about the documents a little bit because that is a statement in the documents, but we don't have Buttigieg himself saying that. I wanna be clear about that. So what are the documents? So there are, there are primarily two documents. The woman who heard the tapes, who made the tapes based on the recording she heard was a woman named Karen DePape who worked in the police department overseeing the machinery for taping the lines. And in the course of her job, apparently, over the over during 2011, she heard a number of these conversations and, and eventually brought them to Chief Boykin's attention. And ultimately, in January of 2012, filed what's called an officer's report, which we've obtained a copy of, uh, detailing some of the specifics that she heard. The other document that we've seen is um, she sued the city for wrongful termination. The city let her go during the tape scandal, and she ultimately sued for wrongful termination. Now, towards the end of 2013, as part of the city's legal response, they sent her a list of questions. Uh, it's something like two dozen questions, most of which are specifics about what do you hear on the tapes. and. Not, so not only did they ask her, but she answered them. And the city attorney's office has had these documents and the outside counsel has had these documents and other lawyers have had these documents. So this kind of goes to the idea of, of what did Buttigieg know and when did he know it? Because he has said, I don't know what's on the tapes and I don't even know if I can ask. But these documents indicate that the city, his attorneys acting on his behalf did know and did ask. So when he says I can't ask, well, I would say that that part is demonstrably false because his lawyers have already asked and received the information, and we see that through your reporting. So when so I want to back up a little bit for people that are unfamiliar with it. Buttigieg is running for the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, in in 2011, and a lot of these recordings happen at that time. 
and and they're not necessarily positive of some of these uh, uh, officers that appear to be conspiring against the black police chief are not necessarily even positive of Buttigieg. They call him a little effing squirt, uh, and but they brag about having access to his donors, what they call the money people. And so uh, then Buttigieg does get into offense, and now here's the the parts that are damning. Borkins was in fact done. Uh, Buttigieg did initially fire him, and then after getting a lot of backlash for that, said, "Okay, okay, I meant I'll just demote him," and he picked a new police chief. And so, Jonathan, his reasoning for that is really important. And and Karen DePape, who's the hero who uh, listens to the tapes, partly because apparently uh, prosecutors asked her to listen to the tapes, uh, and then. Uh, puts her recollection of them in these documents that you found or have had access to, she's also fired. Now, to me, the Karen DePape firing is maybe the worst of all because that points to, if all of this is correct, more of a cover up than anything else after you try to get rid of Boykins. So tell us the ostensible reason that Buttigieg gives for those firings and then what eventually wound up happening, you mentioned a suit there. So there have been multiple rationales for, for why Boykins was demoted and for why Karen DePape was fired. The sort of driving consistent one was uh, Pete Buttigieg has said uh, and said pretty early on that federal prosecutors who began looking at this in January of 2011, after some of the officers found out about the wiretapping, complained. Uh, Buttigieg found out about the investigation and according to Buttigieg, he was basically led to understand that if he, he did not get rid of these people, they would be prosecuted. And so the, the narrative there was that he was saving them from prosecution. And the reason I say there are multiple narratives is because in his book, he suggests that he was manipulated by the prosecutor into uh, taking these people's jobs away. But he has also said that he, for instance, demoted Boykins because Boykins didn't tell him quickly enough about the investigation. So, uh, and then there's there's potentially countervailing evidence when you talk to um, the lawyers for Boykins and DePape, who point out that um, Boykins was apparently asked to hold on to the tapes, which is not the kind of thing you would say to someone who's your your suspect. And DePape, according to these documents, was asked by prosecutors to listen again to something, which makes, again, doesn't sound like something, a request you would make of someone who's legitimately the subject or the target of an investigation. So there's a, and, and ultimately what happened was, you asked me to get to the ultimate, what, what actually happened. Uh, the uh, US Attorney's Office released a statement saying, uh, essentially, we're not aware of any crime committed here and we are not prosecuting anyone for it. See ya. Now, to, in Buttigieg's defense, theoretically, he could argue, well, that's right, because I fired them. That's So that's kind of the quandary there. And in terms of Karen DePape's lawsuit, uh, that was settled. Uh, she filed, filed for wrongful termination. Daryl Boykins filed for discrimination. That lawsuit was settled. And the four officers also sued for defamation, possibly other things, and the city settled with them as well. Everyone got money. Now, to your point about a cover-up, we have no idea what Buttigieg knew when about any of this stuff at all. For all we know, the attorneys involved never even told him. It's it's just 
unclear. There are a lot of still unanswered questions here. Right, uh, well, look, uh, I don't know how it works in small towns. So it is, it is somewhat possible that federal prosecutors say, well, if you fire him, then I won't prosecute. But that would be unusual. It's not a thing that happens normally with prosecutors. You, a prosecutor wouldn't say, well, oh no, it's okay, OJ was fired, so I'm not going to prosecute him. Yeah, that, that's that's the reaction I've gotten. That's the feedback I've gotten. That that's a, a, a pretty unusual step. And the other issue is that Buttigieg wasn't in those meetings. Apparently, his chief of staff, not a legal person, was was apparently in those meetings. And so an outside counsel, a guy named Rich Hill, was brought in who had no relevant criminal or federal legal experience, but did have a lot of political connections, including it turns out to some of the players involved here. So. That raises questions about what did prosecutors tell those those attorneys and the campaign, the chief of staff, and what did those people then tell Buttigieg? So again, still a lot of questions here. So Jonathan, uh, there's um, the tapes are toxic, and that's uh, partly why this is uh, such a big issue. And there's a couple of new quotes that came out in your story, uh, and these are according to the recollection. Because we don't have the actual tapes, we have the documents describing the tapes. But the quote is, it's going to be a fun time when all white people are in charge. And and then one of the officers, the main officer here that appears to be doing this alleged plot refers to African Americans as little apes. And so, but I- Bonics are used when Chief Boykins is discussed at one point as well. Yes, it talks in what is described as ebonics, and and then and then alleges that because it appears based on the color of their skin that Boykins is helping black gang members with no allegations of actual evidence of that, of course, right? And so, but what's interesting is that, and correct me where I'm wrong here, none of the officers who made those incredibly racially charged comments were fired, the person they were plotting against, if these documents are accurate, were in fact fired and demoted. Yeah, that's that's right. That doesn't, at a bare minimum, Buttigieg would have to explain why the black officers mentioned were retaliated against, because that's, and DePape, who was basically, you could argue is almost a whistleblower in this case, was retaliated against and won a lawsuit or settled a lawsuit because it was of wrongful termination. But there was no seemingly negative consequences for any of the white officers on the tapes making these horrendous racial remarks. Well, I think they would dispute that. Their their characters were defamed and all of that, certainly. But another aspect I do want to bring up here is that one of the things that's come out in these documents is that listening to these tapes was a very common occurrence. And not only was it done commonly, but city attorneys knew about the tapes, the recording system, excuse me. They knew about the recording system for years and routinely asked DePape to listen to the recordings. In fact, that's how some of these came to light. So the idea that Buttigieg came into office and then none of his attorneys told him, actually, Mr. Mayor, we do this all the time, this is standard procedure for us. 
I'd be very curious to know whether and how that conversation took place. All right, one, one last thing here, Jonathan. And I, we're gonna, if you're watching this later on YouTube or Facebook, the link to Jonathan's piece will be down below. Just click on it. It's an amazing read. The details are fascinating. Uh, and it's interesting look into how a small town works, how donor power uh, works, and how influential it potentially is, and then obviously the racial component. Uh, and and what appears to be systematic discrimination against uh, black officers, uh, but but you've done a number of stories here where there's very significant racial tensions in South Bend. Uh, so uh, how did these stories even come about? How did you start these investigations? Uh, well, um, back in March, uh, as you remember, we had been doing some reporting on the National Prayer Breakfast and the group, the family, that was the basis for the new Netflix documentary. And after the National Prayer Breakfast, I was just starting to think about what should I be looking at next. And the presidential campaign seemed like an obvious way to go. And I wanted to, I wanted to look at a candidate who was a viable candidate, but hadn't really been vetted at a national or maybe even state level. And the Venn diagram there seemed to seem to be Pete Buttigieg. So I just. I just started reading up and and uh, then making a few calls and and the tapes issue seemed to be the big thing, but it was pretty clear at the time when I first went back in April that no one was talking about the tapes and the big question about the tapes then was did cops say racist stuff on them, and if you recall I was actually able to find out that yeah cops said racist stuff not on the tapes like you 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 don't need the tapes you can just talk to people who have talked to the cops and say. Have they said racist stuff? And it turned out that some of them had. And so uh, the tapes was was kind of on the, the sidelines. But the other story we broke back then was that um, it turned out that this, the county, in accordance with state law, had destroyed all of Buttigieg's campaign finance records from 2011. They don't have to keep them that long. So they were all gone. And what happened was this summer, I actually managed to get find one of those filings through an alternate source. And the attorney I mentioned earlier was in there writing writing a thousand dollar check right around that time. And the donors, obviously, who uh, came into play in this uh, supposed police scheme, they were in there as well. So now it seemed like, okay, I guess we can need, we need to think about these these tapes after all and what they might tell us. Yeah, and maybe the final lesson to get out of this really groundbreaking story is that. Uh, the, about the state of reporting in America, because uh, you went to South Bend and asked around, uh, and you bothered to ask the African American community, uh, and you found out a lot of things because people were frustrated, uh, and and they wound up sharing with you. I mean, if the other news organizations had done likewise, they likely would have gotten the same answers. Is that fair to say? You know, I I don't I don't know. There has been. Some good reporting, and I feel bad for all the people that I spoke with who, who gave me leads and tips and things about the economic disparity and contracting. There's a lot of things that I I feel bad not having done done more about. But I do think that there's sort of a reluctance to to challenge candidates on some of the specifics here, and not just say so. What about the tapes? But say. Tell me when you made the decision to let go of, uh, to, to, to demote Boykins. Tell me who you consulted with, when, uh, were any of them your donors? What was the rationale? Why were you even having conversations, right? Because one of the things we're reporting here, it turns out is, it wasn't just the cops who were apparently in on the plan, 
people other than the cops were talking to Buttigieg, who was a prosecutor, who's now the county prosecutor, was apparently batting around names about who should replace Boykin. So uh, there was a whole, there were a whole bunch of people who were who were looking at this. Right. What that's worth. Yeah, and and um, you don't want to just talk to the powerful. You also want to talk to the powerless. Yeah. Uh, and so then you might get the full story, which is what Jonathan did. So uh, thank you, Jonathan, for joining us. Thank you for uh, breaking the story. And you can find all of Jonathan's stories on tyt.com, including all the ones about South Bend. Uh, appreciate you joining us tonight, Jonathan. Thanks a lot, Jack. Thank you. All right. Now, uh, when we come back, uh, there's a man running for uh, governor in West Virginia that's uh, started a bit of a rebellion. And it's a really interesting story. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't know about it till today. I don't want you to miss out on it. Uh, you're gonna wanna grab a red bandana after this. So we'll be right back and tell you what it is. All right, back on a Young Turks. Joining me now is Stephen Noble Smith. He's running for governor in West Virginia, but it's actually a little bit more than that. It's not just a campaign, it's a movement. Uh, and I might be skeptical about that normally, but uh, having read the details of it, no, no, it's really a movement. He's not playing. Um, and you're gonna wanna take your red bandana and learn about the Battle of Blair Mountain uh, as we talk to Stephen now. Uh, welcome to the Young Turks, Stephen, how you doing? I'm great, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, no problem. So, boy, uh, this is an interesting story. Uh, first, let's talk about your opponent before we get into the details of your uh, West Virginia can't wait uh, movement and how you're getting other people to run for office while you're running for governor. That's a, that's another trip and a wonderful trip at that. But uh, the current governor is Jim Justice. Is he a Democrat, a Republican, both? What is he? Uh, neither. Right, so politics in West Virginia is not left versus right. It's the good old boys versus everybody else. And Jim Justice is the quintessential good old boy. He was a Republican his whole life, taking advantage of working people, not paying his bills. He switched to a Democrat to run for governor. Uh, he then switched to a Republican uh, after about six, seven months in office. This guy doesn't have a D or an R next to his name. He has a dollar sign, and that's exactly what we're up against. We need to fight for a people's government, not just for one governor. See, Stephen, that's really interesting because even in what people perceive to be deeply red state of West Virginia, and by the way, the reason for that perception is it was the state that gave Trump his second largest margin. Jim Justice switched to become a Democrat to run for office. So his perception was in West Virginia, it's better to pretend it to be a Democrat than to be a Republican. Because the only period where he was Democrat was when he was running for office. And so that's a fascinating phenomenon. So I guess yeah. that leads to the question of, yeah, but what do the voters of West Virginia think and want? Because how can they vote for Trump in such big margins? But yet Jim Justice, who's this good old boy, thinks I gotta run as a Democrat to win. Yeah. So. Uh most of what you hear about West Virginia at the national level is just dead wrong. Uh, so as popular as uh, the president is in West Virginia, uh, you don't have to just take my word for it, read the polls. Bernie is more popular than Trump in West Virginia. And the only political actors in the state more popular than that are the teachers and school service personnel who went on strike. Uh, the West Virginians 
are not uh, getting more conservative or right wing. We are angry. And that anger is righteous because we've watched people in both parties take advantage of us, steal our wealth and our work, uh, get rich off of our pain. And so that's why this is exactly the place where this kind of revolutionary populist bottom up politics will start. Um, what that looks like is we actually from the beginning of this campaign said it is not just our goal to win a governor's office. We don't think that one governor has ever made the kind of difference we need. Uh, never in American history has a politician won the change uh, that we desperately need. Only movements can do that. So what that looks like in West Virginia is we have 55 counties. So in our campaign, we have 55 county teams. Berkeley County can't wait, Kanawha County can't wait, volunteer teams in each of the 55 counties who have already organized on their own 118 town halls across the state. Additionally, we have constituency teams. So if you're a veteran or a small business owner, or heaven forbid, a person in recovery uh, or a senior citizen, you are not being represented by the government of West Virginia. So we build constituency teams, again, from the beginning. Veterans can't wait, seniors can't wait, students can't wait, which are built not with anybody's name on them, but built to last beyond the election. Uh, and it's working because what people want isn't a democratic solution or a Republican solution. They wanna be in charge of their own government and that's what we're offering. So Stephen, uh, there's a lot of um, organizing going on. Um, I'm gonna say behind the scenes in the country because the mainstream media is barely aware of it at all. So look, it, it, it started well before Indivisible did, but Indivisible is one of the uh, more um, vi visible, if you will, uh, components of that and, and that, that people could identify because they showed up at the town halls. But our revolution is doing something similar and then we started doing something similar. And I didn't know about your movement in West Virginia and there you are. So I'm curious where you got the idea of, hey, while I'm running for governor, I should spend a lot of time, not on my campaign, but on organizing the entire state so they could do it on their own. Where did you get that idea in the first place? Yeah, so it's not my idea, right? That's the great thing about movements. They don't belong to individual leaders. Um, we have been watching what's happening around the country. And also we looked uh, back to our own history as West Virginians, right? This is a campaign that we're building that is unapologetically pro-labor. And we didn't come up with that on ourselves. We looked back 100 years uh, to the Battle of Blair Mountain, which you mentioned, where black, white, and immigrant workers often not even speaking the same language, came together and literally took up arms to defend themselves against uh, coal company rule. And so when we were launching our campaign, we launched our campaign in Matewan, West Virginia with coal miners. Uh, the, the leaders of our campaign, many of us came out of the teacher's strike movement in West Virginia. I and a handful of other community leaders and parents helped organize a strike fund, but it was watching the people of West Virginia spark a nationwide movement, a worldwide movement that I think reminded a lot of us in West Virginia that the kind of change we need in America happens usually in places like this where the desperation is the greatest. And I'll just add to this because I'm, I'm so proud to be a part of this campaign. Um, our campaign staff here in West Virginia made up of these talented, brilliant, um, uh, women from West Virginia building this infrastructure day in, day out. Uh, they became the first union staff, campaign staff in West Virginia history. 
Uh, and it's that kind of history and seeing our race in historical terms. You know, to answer your original question, before we launched the campaign, we did what organizers do. We went out and had half a dozen statewide meetings. We organized 800 one-on-one face-to-face meetings with community leaders across the state, asking the question, what kind of campaign, what would it take for us to build a people's government, uh, not just to get one guy elected? And that's where this structure came from. God, I love this so much. Okay, so (laughs) let's talk about uh, the Battle of Blair Mountain just a little bit. You mentioned it there. Uh, tell us why the red bandanas, and then I'm curious as to the conclusion of what happened at the end of that battle. Right, so the Battle of Blair Mountain is part of uh, the history of the mine wars uh, in West Virginia, where uh, miners were fighting for uh, the right to organize uh, and uh, the right to bring unions, and also just for basic dignity. This was a job where a hundred years ago in West Virginia, uh, you were more likely to die on the job if you were a coal miner than if you were uh, a World War I soldier overseas, right? I mean, this was a deadly job uh, that paid nothing and where you were uh, sequestered in camps and given a company script to pay your bills. And it was miners and mine workers and unions that turned that job into uh, a middle-class job with dignity. So um, we honor that history by wearing red bandanas. And uh, so as you can imagine, miners, uh, black, white, and immigrant coming together from across the Eastern seaboard uh, in Charleston, West Virginia to march south uh, and stick up for themselves. Um, And they had to identify themselves. They knew they would be attacked because they had already been attacked numerous times by Baldwin Feltz agents, um, by local sheriffs and law enforcement. So they knew they were going into battle. This was not a usual march or protest. And so uh, they needed a way to identify themselves in battle. And they, uh, if you're a coal miner 100 years ago, you had a red bandana. Um, it helped you in the mines. And so uh, they used the red bandana to identify themselves in the hills of West Virginia uh, and fought uh, what is Uh, widely considered to be the bloodiest labor conflict in American history uh, in the hills of West Virginia across racial lines, which of course is the thing that most frightens those in power is when we come together across race uh, and across religion. And by the way, those races came together uh, back in the day in West Virginia in 1921. So uh, in a sense, uh, in some ways, in some areas, we were a little bit more united back then than we are now, where Trump is trying to pit all of us against one another. So, which brings me back to Jim Justice. So, um, what, what I didn't know he was the richest man in West Virginia. So, like donors used to run things by just giving money to the politicians and then owning them. But a couple of people, like Jim Justice, just cut out the middleman. They're like, I'll just buy the state, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, how did uh, Jim Justice's family get all that money? Um, the same way uh, a lot of billionaires do, right? Um, Jim Justice is famous in West Virginia for not paying his bills, for not paying his fines, uh, for not paying his workers. Uh, I mean, this is how you get that much amount of money, uh, is that you are not looking out for everyone. You are looking out for yourself and you're trying to cut every corner. That's how he got wealthy, and the people of West Virginia are not surprised that that's how he governs as well. But here's the thing, and this is important. This is happening across the country, um, and it's happening here in West Virginia. 
Our little campaign, which most people haven't heard of, uh, we have actually outraised Jim Justice and every other uh, candidate for governor combined uh, in this campaign. We've raised more than $400,000 in West Virginia, which is big money here. Um, and we're doing it with small donations. We have more than 4,000 small donations we've received in the campaign already. And uh, Jim Justice has had 13, right? This is how we beat them at their own game uh, is by refusing to play by their rules. And so if you're watching this and you wanna build people power in West Virginia, uh, go to wvcantwait.com and leave your own donation, become a monthly donor, chip in. We can build the kind of governments we want uh, by putting small amounts of money together because there's so many more of us than there are of them. Did you say that Jim Justice only has 13 donors? Uh, 13 small donations, he has lots of larger donors. Okay, so 13 donors under $200. Correct. I mean, it's just comical, absolutely comical. Uh, last. Go ahead. Last question for you, Stephen. Uh, what were you doing before uh, running for office? Yeah, so um, I spent the last 20 years of my life as an organizer. I organized in Chicago, and then I got to move back home uh, to my home state of West Virginia seven years ago, where I ran a, a statewide citizens organization where we took all of the things that West Virginians are good at, the fact that we spend time with our neighbors and uh, charitable giving and volunteer service and military service. And we translated that civic spirit into uh, political victories. The other thing we did is we trained candidates. And so it was natural for us in this campaign to recruit other candidates to run with us. And right now we're at 53 candidates who have all signed a common pledge, the West Virginia Can't Wait Pledge, not to take corporate cash, never cross a picket line, never hide from a debate. And we've got people running for city council, uh, magistrate judge, delegate, Senate, Congress. Uh, and that's the spirit of this thing is that the only time things change in America is when a mass group of people come together and take collective action, make collective sacrifice. And so if you're watching this and you think that might be you, uh, reach out to us, we'll find a way for you to be a part of this as well. I lied, two more quick questions. Uh, you're obviously not taking corporate PAC money, but uh, are you also for single payer? Yes. Okay, so that's easy, wvcantwait.com. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, what did Jim Justice do to Richard Ojeda's old seat? Uh, because uh, Ojeda is a little bit of a fire breathing populist himself, uh, ran for president shortly, and so he gave up a state senate seat. Who did Jim Justice uh, appoint to that seat? Uh, one of his lobbyist buddies, right? But we can't be surprised, this is the thing. They are telling us who they are. Right, And we've gotta be who we are and stop trying to convince them or play nice with them. Uh, our job is to go to that Capitol and not try to convince them to do the right thing, but to go up to that Capitol and replace them with us. We need a government where the people who are making the laws are also the people who work the hardest and hurt the most. And until we have that, everything else is just window dressing. All right, Stephen Noble Smith running for governor in Virginia. Uh, we just showed you the links. West Virginia. I'm sorry, West Virginia. <laughs> I, I, I uh, couldn't wait. We, we fought a war over this, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys fought a lot of wars in West Virginia. So, uh, we which, gotta fight. That's right, which I love. Uh, so, uh, 
make sure if you're watching this later on YouTube or Facebook to check out the links down below because you can donate and volunteer through those links as well. Thank you for joining us and running perhaps the most unique campaign in America today. Thanks so much. All right, appreciate it. All right, guys, when we come back, yes, we do have more of the Young Turks. This portion is just for members, tyt.com slash join to become a member. We're going to discuss what Bill Maher said about how Amy Klobuchar should be the nominee for the Democrats. What? Okay, that when we return.